Welcome to Lecture 4 in our series on the trial of Jesus Christ, the Jewish trial. In Lecture 3, we took some time to understand what the Sanhedrin was, its importance, its unique power at that moment in history, and its chief limitation, its inability to exercise the right of the sword to put anyone to death. That was reserved to Rome. And we talked about Jesus' preliminary hearing before Annas, the Godfather, as we should think of him. In this lecture four, we turn to what actually happened when Jesus appeared before the Sanhedrin. What was he charged with? Was process observed? What was the plan of the high priests, since they had no right of the sword? Now that we know something of what the Sanhedrin was and who its players were, the trial really springs to life. We turn now to the trial and we parse through snippets of details to see what happened. When we last left off, Jesus was being escorted from Annas' wing of the building to Caiaphas' wing, where the Sanhedrin would be meeting. But they likely escorted him into a room packed with spectators and attendants, but no judges. The usual process was that the public and attendants would already be in court when the judges entered. The presiding judge last and everyone present would rise and remain standing until the presiding judge gave them leave to sit down. That's pretty much identical with our trial process today. Everyone takes a seat in the courtroom before the judge enters. When the judge is ready to enter, the bailiff says, All rise, the court of such and such is now in session. The judge enters from a side door with robe on. We'll all remain standing till the judge sits down. And the judge invites everyone else to sit down. This seems likely to have happened in Jesus' trial, except it probably took longer for 70 judges to come in and find their seats. Then after they did, the high priest would enter the room and everyone would stay standing until the high priest invited everyone to be seated. Matthew begins the account directly. Quote, Now the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin were seeking witnesses against Jesus that they might put him to death. Notice four things about this passage. First, he refers to the chief priests, plural. That's that reference to all of the former high priests, former judges, as it were, who get to keep their honorary titles. We've got at least five we know by name who are likely to have been there. Second, he refers to all the Sanhedrin. Again, just like in our last lecture when Matthew and Mark both said that all the priests and all the scribes are present, we have this all applied to the Sanhedrin. Is he saying that all 71 members, including the high priest, were there? Some say yes, some say no, again, because Matthew and Mark are simply trying to convey collective guilt on the body as a whole, and they point out the difficult realities in actually summoning all 71 members on just a couple hours' notice, especially if the fix was in, and they only wanted those present they could count on. So, take your pick. All 71 were there, not all 71 were there. I'm not sure it matters, though, if a couple didn't get the memo and didn't show or didn't want to show. Third, Matthew says they were, quote, seeking witnesses against Jesus. It sounds like they weren't quite prepared, that they were in the process of rounding up witnesses. And you have to wonder how they were doing that on only a couple hours of notice. The task must have been rushed, frenetic. Quick, grab Elias, Micah, and those other two clowns who heard him say that thing about the temple. Get them here immediately. And maybe we would have heard of this, too. And here, give them this little something for the trouble to Caiaphas' house now, as coins go clank, clank into their hands. I've heard of lawyers who had to walk into trial with zero preparation. They'll tell you it almost never goes well. 
You have no idea what's going to happen. And even when you do prepare, you have no idea what may happen. I think this is probably what some of these Sanhedrin members were thinking too. <clears throat> Your Honor, may I please have a brief continuance because I just got the file? No. Counsel, call your first witness. But here's the fourth thing about Matthew's passage, and probably the most important thing. He doesn't talk about the grounds for the trial. He only mentions they were proceeding, quote, that they might put him to death. You see, the fix was in. The death sentence was certain. The grounds are not. As you may recall from our introduction, I took pains to tell you that one of the biggest mistakes people make when they talk about the trial of Jesus is in assuming that this trial process that was recorded in the Mishnah applies to trials during the time of Jesus. We just don't know, and we have lots of good reasons to think that many of those rules and procedures simply didn't apply. But there are some general aspects of their hearings that many scholars think did apply because they're not likely to change no matter if Sadducees are in charge or Pharisees are in charge. One of those aspects is how cases are prosecuted. It seems to be accepted that Jewish legal proceedings were the reverse of the way criminal proceedings go as we're accustomed to thinking of them. When the Byzantine Emperor Justinian I, during his reign from 529 to 565 AD, wrote down a set of laws that he believed he had inherited from his Roman jurists before him, he set the precedent for our bedrock rule of procedure today that one is innocent until proven guilty. That means the state has to prove that someone is guilty of the crime charged, and if it fails to make that proof, the defendant goes free. That means the state goes first. Jewish proceedings had no presumption of innocence, and so trial process there more or less began with the defendant going first to explain his innocence, followed by witnesses who were there to rebut him. Lest you think it was somehow unfair for a criminal defendant not to enjoy the presumption of innocence like that recognized in the Justinian Code, you need to know this much about Jewish law. The requirements for proof of guilt are so stringent and so rigorous, and a defendant has so many possibilities and opportunities of establishing a valid defense, that a conviction is much more difficult and acquittal is much easier to obtain than under a rebuttable presumption of innocence. It was just hard to prove that someone was guilty of some crime, at least as a general rule of Jewish process. Here are some rules, for example, that have solid roots in Leviticus and Numbers and seem highly likely to have applied during Jesus' time. First, it took two witnesses to convict someone of a crime. Two. Get that? One guy sees someone rob the treasury. Too bad. Two guys need to see it. One guy sees someone kill another. Too bad. Two guys need to see it. Second, in a capital case, the testimony of even one witness would be enough to acquit someone. Two guys see someone rob the treasury. One guy says it wasn't him. Defendant goes free. Two guys see someone kill someone else. Another guy says, no, he didn't. The defendant goes free. Now that kind of rule seems bizarre and ineffective to us in modern times. But I think it's really a shame that it seems that way. It's because we're used to having people lying all the time, even in court. Years ago, I was working on a case, and I was completely inflamed about how some witness was lying his pants off, and I was complaining about it to some old gray-haired lawyer. And he said, get over it. I never had a case where at least one person wasn't lying his pants off. Sad to say, now that I'm a gray-haired lawyer, I think I have to say the same thing in all my cases. 
And if you really want to see someone lie, just call him an expert witness. But people didn't lie in ancient Israel. Well, not much. That was because of a couple of things. First, they all believed in an all-knowing God and that he would exact his own particular vengeance on a liar. Being God-fearing people had very real consequences. It kept people from lying. Zechariah calls perjury one of the greatest of sins. In fact, it was so great that God himself would deal with it, and you really didn't want that to happen. In addition, if you didn't fear God, either because you didn't believe in him or you thought he would excuse you for doing what you did, you feared man too, at least in this respect. Because if you were found to have perjured yourself in a criminal trial, you'd be given the same punishment of what the accused was facing. In other words, you lie in a capital case and are found to have lied, you will be punished by death. Now, I pointed this to explain the rule I mentioned above. It took two witnesses to convict, and one witness could acquit someone of a capital crime no matter how many witnesses testified otherwise. Hang on to this notion for a few minutes, because we're going to see it played out in real time. There's one more rule that was probably in effect at Jesus' trial, because that too is Levitical. To get a conviction, the testimony of the witnesses had to be exactly the same. Exactly. One of the greatest examples of this comes from the book of Daniel. Well, it's in a part of Daniel that Catholics and Eastern Orthodox accept as canonical, whereas Protestants don't, but the story's pretty familiar. A couple of old lechers, they're described as elders, so they must have been rich, dirty old men, saw the beautiful young Susanna bathing one day, and so they sprang on her and propositioned her. She rebuffed them, so they charged her with infidelity and put her on trial for a capital crime and offered testimony against her. The court was about to convict poor Susanna when young Daniel comes to the scene and cross-examines the two lechers, exposing discrepancies of where they claim they saw her and resulting in Susanna's acquittal and the execution of the two old perjurers. The story was well known at the time of Jesus and illustrates the point, not only about the witnesses having matching testimony, but perjury punishable by the crime at issue. One rule that has generated a considerable amount of debate between scholars is the quorum rule. There's a rule that says you have to have so many people show up to make a decision or no decision can be made. Might be a simple majority, might be two-thirds. It all depends on what your rules say. And organizations usually have rules telling how many people need to be present before any voter action can be taken. The mission is pretty clear that for the Sanhedrin to take any official action, there had to be at least 23 members present. See, 23 is just a third of 70, but that was something they thought, given their experiences, would be fair. So some have liked to speculate that Jesus' trial was a quick scam job where 23 members who were hostile to Jesus rounded up just enough members to get the job done. There are a lot of problems with that theory, and I'm not going to go into them all. But first, we have to deal with the all verbiage that Matthew used in describing who was there. Why would he say all, even if to imply collective guilt, if only about a third of the members were actually there? Second, if it really was a quick scam job, then why did the trial last all night? Third, same point, different angle, why have a trial? Just drag him to Pilate. Fourth, how come no one ever complained about it that way? I mean, the gospel writers or early Christians. So I like weighing in with those scholars who say that there just wasn't a quorum rule that applied at the time, or if there was, 
it needn't have applied. I mentioned the prosecution. There was no official prosecutor as such. The witnesses were the prosecution and would be called by any interested member of the Sanhedrin. In Jesus' case, they were probably summoned earlier to Caiaphas' house and were rehearsing their testimony to make sure it would be exactly the same. Remember when I said that the usual procedure was that the defendant would put forth pleas of exoneration first? Well, they didn't happen here because Jesus, we're told, remained silent. St. Augustine makes the arresting observation that, quote, when Christ was silent, he was like a lamb, but when he spoke, he taught as a shepherd. Did any witnesses appear on Jesus' behalf? We don't know. The mind can be drawn both ways. On the one hand, given the late and urgent calling of the trial, case can be made that no witnesses appeared on his behalf. Also, think who Jesus was most popular with, the poor, the outcast, sinners, and the like. Do you think that even if they had heard about this late night sudden trial going on, that A, they would have had the courage to stand before this powerful august assembly, or B, Various agents for this powerful, august assembly might not have barred them from entering or testifying. Uh, excuse me, sir, can I see your papers? I am sorry, but they're not in order. You can't come in now. And there's a strange kind of issue underlying the trial that we'll come to at the end. But let's say you wanted to testify in favor of Jesus. Wouldn't you want to testify that he was the Messiah? That he was God-made man? If you did, wouldn't you be helping to convict him? Maybe that's why John either left with Peter or stayed in the halls and kept his mouth shut. Or maybe, just maybe, John was blurting out talking points from the gallery and wasn't expelled, perhaps because, as he tells us in his own gospel, he was known to the high priest. Perhaps from his own humility, he declined to share more details. And was John capable of shouting out? Well, it was Jesus himself who gave him and his brother James the nicknames Sons of Thunder. Thunder isn't normally quiet. Then there's this very loaded line from Mark about how the trial was proceeding. Quote, Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. End quote. This short cryptic sentence tells us lots of things. First, there were many witnesses. How many? No idea. But many is interesting. Why were there many? Did they want to stack the deck against him? Pile on with tons of evidence so no one could question their legality later? That doesn't seem to sit. It was late already. Why make it later? More likely, it was because many were needed. Which raises the second point. They testified falsely. Hmm. How would you know their testimony was false unless someone was there pointing out it was false? Wouldn't one of the ways you would show it was false be in getting other witnesses to testify that it was false? Which raises the third point. Her statements didn't agree. Why couldn't they agree? Who noticed their testimonies didn't agree? Who refused to proceed, having pointed out that the testimony of these witnesses didn't agree? Normally, you don't know that people's stories don't agree unless someone is pointing it out to you that they don't agree. The devil's in the details, as they say, and someone must have been pointing out the devil. In court, that would be done through cross-examination. 
like young Daniel did on behalf of Susanna. So don't these few words tell us something pretty significant? That there was very likely someone acting as counsel for the defense, pointing out inconsistencies emphatically to the opposing majority? Was it Arimathea, Nicodemus, Gamaliel? Anyone? Anyone? Well, the name's not recorded, but it sure seems as if someone was trying to come to Jesus' defense through effective use of cross-examination and or provision of contradictory witness testimony. Whoever it was, gosh, I feel for that guy. Everything's stacked against you. You have no time to prepare. The whole courtroom hates you. They're trying to shut you down, to shut you up. But they can't, because you have credentials. You have a right to be there, and they know you do. So they make your life miserable in the process. They lie to you. They conceal evidence from you. They insult you. They threaten you. And yet you stand. In my mind, this is how I like to think of poor Arimathea, or whoever it was, as he tried to halt this manifest injustice. If witnesses couldn't agree, that means someone was there pointing out the inconsistencies and acting as counsel for the defendant. God bless him. I think it's okay to imagine things this way. And one other point regarding this brief description of how the trial was proceeding so far. I thought we said that if you testified falsely, you could be subject to the same penalty as the person being charged. So true. So what happened to these false witnesses here? But one curious counterpoint to notice through the process so far Sanhedrin really was trying to reach what it believed was a fair decision. They didn't just accept the testimony as given, whitewash over a few immaterial discrepancies, submit the matter to a vote, and call it a night. No, they pressed on. They called many witnesses. They wanted consistency between them. They knew that, so far, their testimony was, in fact, false and they didn't want to rely on false testimony. They wanted truthful testimony. Isn't that something when you think about it? Truth with a capital T was on trial for truth, and so far the truth couldn't convict him. There's a lot to unpack there, and I beg you to take time to unpack it on your own sometime. I always think it's worth reflecting on what might have been going through Jesus' mind while the trial was proceeding as one witness after another began testifying falsely against him. This is a man who, whatever you think of him, spent his life memorizing the ancient psalms and prophecies, just like many in the room there with him had memorized too. How about Psalm 43? Quote, Defend me, O God, and plead my cause against a godless nation. From deceitful and cunning men, rescue me, O God. End quote. And oh, how deceitful and cunning these men were. Or Psalm 86, quote, The proud have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. To you they pay no heed. End quote. Could there possibly be more proud or more ruthless men assembled in all of Israel than were assembled there? I like Psalm 57. Quote, my soul lies down among lions who would devour the sons of men. Their teeth are spears and arrows, their tongue a sharpened sword. End quote. Make no mistake about it, these were really smart, really educated people. 
their tongues and minds lethally sharp. And the witnesses, do you think they were stupid tools? Take Psalm 5, quote, No truth can be found in their mouths. Their heart is all mischief, their throat a wide open grave, all honey their speech, end quote. Yes, all honey. We've all seen that before. Yes, Jesus could size them up well. And he would have also implored his father for aid. Psalm 144, quote, Reach down from heaven and save me. Draw me out from the mighty waters, from the hands of alien foes, whose mouths are filled with lies, whose hands are raised in perjury. End quote. Notice that we're not the only ones who raise our hands in court and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. These witnesses had to do so too, and they did so with their mouths filled with lies and perjured testimony. And yes, as Psalm 27 foretold, Jesus saw, quote, false witnesses rising against him, quote, breathing out fury. But he would soon also witness this fascinating truth from this same psalm, quote, when evildoers draw near to devour my flesh, it is they, my enemies and foes, who stumble and fall, end quote. They did stumble and fall because this oblique passage about the trial we've been talking about tells us the witnesses couldn't agree. Hmm. Mark then draws us into the penultimate moment of drama. Two witnesses came forward, he said, quote, We ourselves have heard him say, I will destroy this temple built by hands, and after three days I will build another not built by hands, end quote. You get the sense that this is it. They found two witnesses. Their testimony is exactly the same. And it concerns something serious, tearing down the temple. Yes, that'll work. We've got them. High fives. Was it a serious charge? You bet it was a serious charge. Jeremiah got that charge. Under Levitical law, the destruction of a place of worship was one of the most serious charges. Folks, God had said, you destroy one of my holy places, and I will destroy you. Stone by stone, I will let your kinsmen do it. You see, that's why plenty of Jews were so forgiving of Herod. Yes, he was a monster, but he got us our temple back. It's the Lord's house, and it's ours to cherish. It meant everything to you because it housed the Lord. You so much as try to destroy the Lord's house, you are trying to destroy the Lord, and we will therefore destroy you. But John points out that the witnesses had got it wrong. When Jesus said, quote, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up, he was obviously referring to the temple of his body, John tells us. Was this one of those times when John thundered something from the gallery? Apparently, more than just John thought it was obvious, too, because the proceedings didn't end. They continued. No conviction yet. The witnesses plunged into inconsistency, he notes, which means, under Levitical rules, their testimony was valueless. Again, what I'd like to know, who pointed out that it was valueless? I feel like some credit has to be given to Caiaphas because he acquiesced to the whole point. If this is supposed to be a lynch mob, 
It certainly isn't acting like one. I'm sure some must have been still quite rankled by this ruling, because afterwards, when Jesus was on the cross, he was still taunted with this charge. Some apparently believe that this really was a charge that should have stuck on him. Think of Caiaphas at this point, the high priest. Think how furious he must have been watching this ship of fools proceed before him. Idiots! Idiots all! You can't call witnesses. You can't marshal evidence. Do I have to do everything for you? So he steps forward, forward from his seat in the middle of the semicircle. And he approaches the defendant, who's in the center of this arena, past the scribes taking notes, past their desks, past the pupils seated on the floor, and in full regalia with his Passover robes. And he says, or does he scream? Since the scriptures give us no intonation, I like to think of him as the measured, collected, self-possessed, high priest, man of the world he is, as he says, maybe through grit teeth, quote, have you no answer? What are these men testifying against you? He must have been exceedingly vexed. Jesus had said nothing. He had not indicated he would say anything. Caiaphas had expected him to crack, to explode like many criminal defendants do. They jump out and shout, that's a lie! But no, Jesus didn't do that. Mark says pointedly, Jesus gave no answer. He was silent. You need to think about the proceedings at this point. Witnesses couldn't agree. No charge was sticking. Not even the charge about the temple. The court probably had no more evidence. No more witnesses out in the hall or the courtyard. No more pack of lies to peddle before the group. The proceedings, in a word, were deadlocked. And the defendant was on the brink of release. Stop a moment and reflect on this fact when you hear someone talk about the trial of Jesus and tell you it was a phony trial. It really was not, and these facts demonstrate it. This was no mob venue, no people's court from the French Revolution or the People's Republic of China. These Jewish leaders were taking their jobs seriously. They were following process. Yes, they wanted him lynched, but they realized they needed to follow rules to lynch him, which I guess means it wasn't a lynching. I don't think we've crawled enough into the mind of your average Pharisee. Caiaphas was a Sadducee, not a Pharisee, but he certainly shared many of the same sentiments as one. Ask either one of them this, why did God create the world in this particular piece of land here in Israel? They will say, to give it to the Jews. And they were right. And you'll get that same general answer to observant Jews to this day, especially from those who still live there and even from many who don't. Here, God has taken the trouble to form a people separate and apart from all other peoples and to give them land in which to live and to flourish. And yet they really can't live and flourish in that land because some foreign power has invaded them and prevented them from living and flourishing in that land. And now some young rabbi comes along and talks about the kingdom of God and says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's and extols the peacemakers, and tells people to turn their cheek to the other side when someone smacks them on one side. Someone who says the poor are blessed, that it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to go to heaven, that people need to pick up their crosses and follow him. And then he disrespects appointed authority. 
He hangs out with publicly recognized sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, holds up Samaritans as good examples, and touches the unclean when Hashem has expressly said, do not touch the unclean. You get the picture? This runs, or it seems to run, against the very grain of your average Jews being then. The wisest of their people over several centuries had worked out carefully, painstakingly, a way to live among the rules the Lord had given them. 613 commandments with each commandment or mitzvah falling into one of two categories, 365 negative and 248 positive. There's some dispute among Jewish authorities whether these exact numbers existed in ancient biblical times or were worked out later, but my point's the same. The Jews were exceedingly careful to ensure that they had honored, respected, and observed God's commandments to the highest extent possible in giving their whole hearts and their whole minds. You simply cannot underappreciate the exquisite beauty and piety of doing that, then or even today. One of the most important prayers, if not the most important prayer in all of Jewish tradition is the Shema, which means hear or listen, which is the first word from the Torah, chapter 6 of the book of Deuteronomy, verses 3 and 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Israelites would, and still do, pray it twice daily. They taught their children to say it before they went to sleep, and they prayed it would be the last words that ever left their lips before they died. Yes, we are rule followers because God gave us those rules, and we follow them because we love God with our whole hearts, our whole souls, and our whole strength. And you, you young upstart rabbi, you want to come along and tell us not to follow these rules? How dare you? So against this backdrop, and with the trial on the brink of dismissal, you have to appreciate what happens next. Caiaphas approaches Jesus and says these words, quote, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, end quote. You want drama? This is drama. Hear again what he said, quote, I adjure you, end quote. Scholars tell us that's a very special word in Greek. Exokazin. The Mishnah says that if anyone is put under oath by the divine name, one is bound to answer. You have to answer. You have no Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. You must, you will answer. Paul uses the same word, too, when he was casting out demons and exorcisms. Even the demons have to answer, which is why Paul, good Pharisee that he was, and knowledgeable about this same command, could say it to a demon. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And then there's this wonderful irony going on here. As inside this building, Jesus is being ordered to take an oath, even though he had counseled his disciples to avoid taking them. And then outside this building, Peter, his rock, had just volunteered an oath that he does not know him. In manifest humility to submit to the same command that binds demons and human witnesses alike, 
Jesus submitted to the command too, and forfeited any inherent right to remain silent, and knowing that anything he said can and would now be used against him. And here you go. His answer to this question was, quote, yes. The Gospels give us three formulations of it. Mark says simply, quote, I am, ego me. Matthew says, quote, you said it, a Semitic way of saying yes, along the lines of, of course. And Luke gives it this way, quote, you say that I am, which has the meaning of, you wouldn't have said it if it weren't true. So did Jesus say only one of these things or all three? I don't care, and I don't know why he couldn't have said all three. Whatever he said, he said, yes. And then he added this powerful statement along with it. It left no mistake in his audience what he was referring to. He said in three slightly different formulations this, having already answered in full the question put to him. He added, purely unsolicited and voluntarily, quote, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, end quote. Every member of that audience knew the three biblical references he was referring to in this reply because these three references had, for the last 500 years or so, pointed to and described to them the Messiah who would come and restore Israel, the one everyone, including all of them seated there, were waiting for. Psalm 110 says, quote, Sit at my right until I make your enemies the footstool at your feet. Psalm 80, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. And then this, from Daniel, chapter 7, quote, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. So there you go. The Messiah will be at God's right hand, and he will come with the clouds of heaven, exactly what Jesus appropriated to himself. This undid Caiaphas. Mark says, quote, But the high priest tore his garments and said, What further need have we of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as liable to death. End quote. Let's rewind the tape a second. He said, quote, You have heard the blasphemy. End quote. Did you hear any blasphemy? Well, scholars have talked lots and lots about whether any blasphemy was said or heard. One of the starting points in answering this question is going back to the question Caiaphas put to Jesus. He asks him, quote, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Messiah is our word from the Aramaic, Messiah, from the Hebrew, Messiah. Its equivalent in Greek is Christos. It means the anointed one. As the Jewish Encyclopedia explains, the earliest use of the words the Messiah is with the word YHWH as a title of the ruling sovereign in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel and in 2nd Chronicles. The terms appear in post-exilic times as well with reference to the high priest, filling the place formerly occupied by the king, showing he'd been placed in a special relationship to God and established as the one chosen by God 
to represent his rulership in Israel and to bear witness to his glory before the nations. Isaiah was the first prophet to give a detailed picture of the future ideal king as the Messiah. He will come from the stock of Jesse. A spirit of wisdom, valor, and religion will fall on him, and he will rule in the fear of God, his loins girt with righteousness and faithfulness. He will not engage in war or in the conquest of nations. His sole concern will be to establish justice among his people, the fruit of which will be peace and order throughout the land. The people will not aspire to political greatness, but will lead a pastoral life. They'll prosper and fear no attack from outside nations. He'll stand as a beacon to other nations, and they'll come to him for guidance and arbitration and be wonderful counselor, godlike hero, constant father, prince of peace. Jeremiah and Ezekiel offer similar but more cryptic descriptions. What you notice from these descriptions and others, and which scholars have mined over for years and still do, is that while this new ruler, the Messiah, may have divine-like qualities, he's not regarded necessarily as divine himself. So Caiaphas asked Jesus, are you the Messiah? And Jesus answers, yes. And Caiaphas says, there you go, folks, blasphemy. And everybody says, yep, that's it, we're done here. I can't say there's a consensus on this, but I'd venture to say that there's a majority view on the blasphemy charge, given the amount of commentary on it, that no blasphemy had occurred. Blasphemy was both nebulous and highly specific when it came to punishment. Leviticus chapter 24 says, quote, One who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. The whole congregation shall stone the blasphemer, end quote. There's an example in 1 Kings chapter 21 of when Jezebel, the wicked wife of King Ahab, drummed up charges of blasphemy against Naboth so they could take his vineyard, saying he had, quote, cursed both God and king and deserved to be stoned to death. The notion of blasphemy was a cursing or reviling of God or the king who was God's surrogate. The Jewish encyclopedia explains that Beyond the reference to cursing in the text of Leviticus, there's nothing in the biblical laws to indicate what constitutes the crime and nothing to show that to prove blasphemy, it was required to prove that the blasphemer had uttered the name of God. Nevertheless, Jewish tradition has recognized three kinds of blasphemy, although only the cursing form just mentioned had any recognized basis for capital punishment. One kind, of course, is blasphemy for cursing or insulting God. But Jesus never even came close to doing that here. There was a second form of recognized blasphemy, repeating the name of God. The word used for God in the Hebrew scriptures is known as the tetragrammaton because it stands for the four Hebrew letters that stand in place of it, the substitute for the word God gave Moses when God gave his name as I am who am. Latin transcriptions of these Hebrew letters for the four-letter association of YHWH caused English users to put vowels between them so as to form the word Yahweh, which will be the only time you'll hear me pronounce this word because observant Jews find this term offensive. Indeed, in 2008, the Vatican under Pope Benedict XVI gave orders not to use this term in the liturgy or in songs or prayers anymore. 
we can use substitutes like Adonai or Hashem, meaning Lord. God's specially revealed name is sacred and an expression of his infinite greatness and majesty. We shouldn't say it. But back to blasphemy in Jesus. While there's some Jewish tradition indicating that a blasphemy occurred when one repeated the Tetragrammaton, there's no indication it was punishable by death. And more importantly, for Caiaphas' purposes, Jesus never repeated the word. He said the word power, which is not the word designated by YHWH. A third form of blasphemy was recognized for arrogantly claiming to yourself what belonged to God. But even that form's pretty murky. Hey, that temple is mine. Or hey, I parted the Red Sea. That was this kind of blasphemy, although I've had to use absurd examples only because scholars aren't really aware of a single example that occurred in biblical times. They mention it only because it was a theoretical possibility for blasphemy. There's an example in Josephus of some crazy peasant in the 60s, the real 60s, not the 1960s, named Jesus Ananias, who was making quite a public scene about the destruction of the temple that caused the authorities, it's not clear if they were acting as a Sanhedrin, to flog him to the bone and hand him to the Roman procurator Albinus for execution. But the procurator found him insane and released him. Historians have wrestled quite a bit over this story and its relation to Jesus' charges, process, and conviction, but the term blasphemy is not expressly part of this case, as it was in Jesus' case. Scholars are still left quite divided and scattered about Jesus' blasphemy charge here and its relation to arrogantly claiming something to yourself that belongs to God. Yes, he claimed to be the Messiah, but claiming to be the Messiah did not impugn God. There's just not much of a case to be made from early Jewish history that claiming to be the Messiah was a blasphemy. But there are plenty of reasons why Jewish authorities may have thought that Jesus had crossed the line and had arrogated things to himself that belonged to God in a way that could be described as blasphemous. There was that time he said to a paralyzed man who had been lifted down to him through a hole in some roof. And before he told him to pick up his mat and walk said, quote, Son, your sins are forgiven, prompting some of the lawyers there to think to themselves, quote, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? End quote, says Mark. Then there was that time he was walking in Solomon's colonnade during the festival of the dedication, and some of the Jews said to him, quote, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly, end quote. He answered them, quote, I did tell you, but you didn't believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one, end quote, from John chapter 10. Ooh, hear that? Quote, I and the Father are one, end quote. That's pretty close, close enough for his hearers. They picked up stones to stone him, which, remember, was the Levitical penalty for blasphemy, and he responded immediately, quote, For which of my good works are you stoning me, end quote, 
They said, quote, We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God, end quote. Hear that? For blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. That would have been really, really interesting if he had been put on trial and convicted on those words, but he wasn't. It might be because they knew what Jesus' defense was going to be, and they didn't want any part of that. He said then, and they may have feared he would say again at trial, quote, Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Do you think they were wondering whether these works of his, that is, his many miracles, might then be put into evidence? How would trial go on those charges? What are we to make of all this? What if Caiaphas had asked Jesus this, quote, are you God? End quote. Or, are you the word of God made flesh and dwelling among us? Or, do you have a homoestatic union comprised of divine and human natures? Jesus had said yes to these questions. Caiaphas might have had a point about the blasphemy. And that would have been really interesting because Jesus would have answered yes to these questions too. But Caiaphas didn't ask him these questions. He asked him if he was the anointed leader who is to come, and saying yes to that doesn't seem to be a blasphemy to most scholars. What about the context here in view of the other instances, forgiving sins of others, saying I and the Father are one? Blasphemies? Well, we don't have any confirmed analysis of these as blasphemies, and these statements were not what the trial was about, or at least not what the conviction was based on. Is this what we're supposed to conclude then, that we have a conviction based on a false premise, an admission that he was the Messiah, separate and apart from evidence that he had arrogated things of God to himself, such as forgiving sins and claiming identity with the Father, but based on something that those of us who are Christians believe is absolutely true, that he was God? If God says he is God, is that a blasphemy under any notion? Well, of course not. We're not being stupid but we're framing the issue. What if someone who's not God says he's God? Well, yes, but Jesus didn't exactly say he was God to Caiaphas, but he did effectively say that on other occasions outside the trial. Are we saying then that they convicted him correctly, but on facts that were known publicly and not introduced at trial? Are we making more trouble than it's worth to even talk about the trial because he really was guilty, in fact, if not in law. Is that why the early Christians could care less about the trial? Is that maybe why we shouldn't care about the details of the trial too? I don't know. The scholars are all across the board on this, and it's not hard to see why, given where we seem to be going with this. If Jesus is God, then it was manifestly unjust to have him tried and convicted him on anything, much less on a charge of blasphemy. And if Jesus is not God, then it was not unjust to have tried and convicted him on charges that he was acting as if and saying as if he was God. Yes, please, 
try to keep wrapping your head around it if you're able. So I wonder if we're all being too hard on Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Oh, sure, they were not good people. We have that on high authority, at least as to a lot of them, with several notable exceptions who, by all indications, really were good people. Did they reach an unfair verdict? Some ways, yes. Some way, no. If you believe Jesus was like Peter confessed he was at Caesarea Philippi, the Christ, the Son of the living God, then yes, of course. But if you don't, well, maybe not. I suppose I'll leave it to you to decide that, yes or no. Let's pick back up, though, with the factual summary we have here. The chief judge steps down from the bench, interrogates the defendant, gets the defendant to blurt some offensive statement right there in the courtroom with all the fellow judges as witnesses, a statement that's a capital offense when made, and then, on his own, declares a conviction with that statement without, shall we say, additional due process and separate and apart from whatever charge they had hauled him into court in the first place. Yeah, that seems to be what happened. I've talked a lot about the rules of the Mishnah and cautioned against applying them at Jesus' trial. Just so you know what kind of rules there were, let's talk about them. First, you couldn't have trials at night. This trial was at night. That'd be a problem. Second, you couldn't have trials on the eve of the Sabbath or feast. This trial was on the eve of Passover or on Passover. We'll talk about that in Lecture 7. Either way, That'd also be a problem here. Third, you couldn't pronounce death sentences on the day of the trial. You needed to wait a day. That didn't happen here. The sentence was pronounced immediately. Fourth, a defendant, especially a defendant under a capital crime, was supposed to be given an advocate. Oddly, one or more seems to have acted in this rule, but they certainly weren't allowed any preparation time. Fifth, Witnesses were solemnly admonished before examination that if they gave false testimony, so help them God. Not clear that happened here. Six, witnesses who gave false testimony were supposed to suffer the proposed punishment to the defendant. We don't hear about multiple crosses at Calvary for all of those many witnesses who testified falsely. Seventh, any witnesses to a crime were not allowed to take part in the passing of any sentence. What happened here? They were all witnesses, and they all voted. Technically, they should have all recused themselves and submitted the matter to an independent panel. Eighth, younger members were supposed to vote before older members to avoid undue influence. Here, Caiaphas voted first and made the rest follow. Think there were any young bucks there who were thinking, well, wait a minute, Caiaphas, that's not what I learned in yeshiva. I want you to take notice of each of these rules I just went through. Notice they're all rather nice rules. What I mean is that they're there because they aim to provide a more humanitarian process to the accused. That's the Pharisees in a later generation trying to rework what had been done by all those harsh Sadducees during their harsh reign. That's why we need to readjust our thinking when we think about Pharisees as a class. They were the humane alternative. So much, in fact, that Mishnah Makot says, quote, a Sanhedrin that puts a man to death once in seven years is called a murderous one. Talmudic law says all capital punishment must be based on two things, 
First, that, quote, love your neighbor as yourself, as in Leviticus 19, was to be interpreted as applying even to the condemned criminal. You love him by giving him the most humane, that is, the most beautiful, death possible. And second, that judicial execution should resemble the taking of life by God. As the body remains externally unchanged when God takes the life, so in judicial executions, the body should not be destroyed or mutilated. My favorite Jewish rule is this under the Gemara. Remember, these are the Jewish writings after the Mishnah that helped form the Talmud. The defendant goes free if all of the judges find him guilty. Think about it. Life has a lot of gray in it. And you can't really get people to agree on everything very often. So if all 71 people think someone's guilty, the fix must really be on. Let the poor guy go. So, yes, if the laws of the Mishnah were in force at Jesus' trial, we have lots of serious breaches. But even assuming those breaches, it's not like he had some kind of kangaroo court. Five points to keep in mind. First, the Sanhedrin clearly adhered to some kind of hearing procedures. That's why we keep hearing about multiple witnesses and hearing they were discarded when they didn't agree. Second, the Jewish leaders were smart enough to know they couldn't foist some fraudulent trial on Pilate. He'd throw them out of his court in a Roman minute. Third, none of the evangelists ever commented on any trial irregularities. They certainly could have and had plenty of opportunity to do so, but they didn't. Fourth, None of the emergent Christians, who are plenty polemical against the Jews in plenty of other respects, ever accused the Jews of breaking rules as such, just that they had met not to reach a just verdict, but as Mark says, to convict Jesus of a capital crime. Well, yes, I think they would even agree with that. They thought he deserved it. Can I dive into a footnote we've glossed over? I want to talk about Caiaphas tearing his robes. It says that after hearing Jesus' response, he tore his robes. Why did he do that? To the ancient Jews, tearing your robes was a sign of grief as with death. Jacob tore his robes on hearing of Joseph's death. David tore his on hearing the death of Saul and Jonathan. And this action was not unknown among other cultures. Augustus Caesar did the same thing on hearing of the defeat of Varus in Germany. But there was something special about the high priest's robes. Moses had told Aaron and his sons that they were not to tear their sacred robes. But the Mishnah records a tradition in which judges in a blasphemy were required to tear their robes on hearing a blasphemy. And those weren't just any old robes like any old judge would wear. They were hugely precious and symbolic. They had such power when worn that between 6 and 37 AD, which includes the same period we're talking about, the Romans safe kept them in the fortress of Antonia and only gave them out for liturgical functions on feast days. If you think of how and why the British banned the bagpipes in Ireland, you get the same idea. When symbolism becomes a call to action, better control the symbol in the first place. By the way, scholars have used this detail to wonder whether Caiaphas had torn the sacred robes at Jesus' trial, assuming Passover began the following evening. What? what did someone run to the fortress that night and say, um, hey, we're here to get the high priest's robes because we got a special trial going on tonight? Oh, and by the way, there's likely to be a blasphemy there, so don't blame us if we bring them back torn, okay? Others muse that they were probably allowed to get them early anyhow, what with pressing and trips to the cleaners and so forth. So 
yes, it doesn't seem to be a problem that Caiaphas is wearing them that night. Josephus records a terrific detail about the high priest's robes. He said they included an inner garment that went to the ankles and an outer garment that went to the feet, blue or purple in color with tassels, golden bells, and pomegranates on the hem, all put together in one piece. Yes, pomegranates. They have an ancient venerable tradition of having possibly been the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. Also, they have 613 seeds in them, the exact number of Jewish laws. Well, sometimes they do, more or less, but they might. And when they do, they reflect God's law. I think that's rather beautiful. And the robes must have been rather beautiful too, adorned with a breastplate representing the 12 tribes of Israel and a host of other richly symbolic images. As I say, to tear them was a big dang deal, and Caiaphas must have felt good cause to tear them based on what he heard. As noted, the Sanhedrin, following Caiaphas's lead, pronounced the sentence on Jesus, having just witnessed the alleged crime. Quote, and they all condemned him liable to death. All? Even Joseph of Arimathea? Nicodemus? Maybe they tore their robes along with their hair and left the hearing by then. Maybe they stuck around, cursed their fellow judges, and looked for a walking stick to start beating people. Maybe they hugged Jesus and wept with him. Maybe having some premonition, they better get some burial provisions ready for him. Who knows? Whatever all Mark was talking about was at least meant to describe the collective pack of wolves who wanted an innocent man dead. Wait, can't we appeal? No. Remember, Sanhedrin was the highest court, subject to no king. Motion to reconsider. Ha! Those don't even work in courts today. Motion for judgment notwithstanding verdict. Denied. Motion for new trial. Witness tampering. Juror misconduct. Judicial bias. Denied. Motion to vacate judgment based on newly discovered evidence. Denied. One more motion, counsel, and I'll consider imposing sanctions against you. Case is dismissed. Bailiff, will you please escort everyone from the courtroom? Guards, will you see to the defendant, please? But Jesus is not done, not quite. Without room and rule in place, they would have taken him outside and stoned him. I'm sure some of them wanted to stone him right there, as they later did to Stephen, and couldn't control themselves, and didn't want to wait for the Roman procurator's approval. Mob violence, that was. But here, they control themselves. Off to Pilate he'd go, because only the Romans held the right of the sword and couldn't put anyone to death. So they decide to have a little fun in between. Luke tells us they spat at him, blindfolded him, hit him in the face, challenged him to prophesy who hit him. Oh yes, they understood he claimed to be the Messiah, to be a prophet who would know the future. Hey, tell us who's going to hit you next. Pop, whack, laughter, repeat. But of course, he really did know. And he also knew that what Isaiah said about him was just fulfilled. Quote, I gave my cheek to those who hit me and turned not away my face from shame and spitting. Luke says it was the attendants who did this. Naturally, it wasn't the chief priests or members of the Sanhedrin. Such base actions were beneath them. That's why they had scumbag servants do this for them, one of whom may have been the one with a neatly affixed severed ear. Or did he decide to pass on this fun? 
The judges were now back in chambers, as it were. They knew they had to get to the criminal to Pilate, and they had to do it fast, because as Mark tells us, quote, day was breaking when the sitting came to an end. What would they tell Pilate? How could they force his hand? Quick, somebody, think of a plan. Caiaphas, Caiaphas! He may have been staring off into space at this point, wondering how in the world he could get a Roman sentence based on a conviction of a religious crime. He'd have a few hours to get a plan in place, or would he? Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us when the trial ended, but you get the impression from what we've heard it was pressing into the wee hours of the morning, if not a little more. Luke offers a detail, but with a problem. He says, quote, When day came, the assembly of the elders and of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, and on and on. So what does he mean when he says, when day came? Was this a second trial? Was there some attempt at technical compliance with some rule that trials couldn't be held at night? As I mentioned, it's these kind of details that keep scholars up at night. Yes, some will say that's exactly what was going on. They theorized that the Sanhedrin held a second trial at dawn, which formalized the sentence through a formal hearing. The one lasted through the night was a kind of practice run, but there are a lot of problems with that, not the least of which, did Jesus play the fool and repeat the same words again? Did Caiaphas tear his robes again? After all, he heard a blasphemy a second time. Really? That's the way it happened? Well, if you're a literalist, these are the kinds of difficulties you need to account for, and they don't seem to be accounted for very well. Others agree that this scenario makes no practical sense and point out that you don't need to have such a forced reading when you can just understand the passage this way. As I mentioned, Luke is really interested in telling Peter's story about his betrayal and denial because these things are central to Christianity as it shows the power of repentance. So, they say, Luke breaks up the story of the Jewish trial to tell Peter's story. And then, when he picks back up with the trial, he has to reintroduce the parties. And that's why he uses the terms, when day came. So, under that view, no second trial. We come now to the conclusion of the Jewish trial. Jesus has been found guilty of a crime, and he's now being turned over to the Roman authority, the procurator, Pontius Pilate, for execution of that crime. Who was Pontius Pilate? What do we know about him? What was Roman process like? How did it differ from Jewish process? Please join us for Lecture 5, Pontius Pilate.